Welcome to Help from Future Self. Hey, what's going on, Archons? Welcome to another episode of Help from Future Self, the conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends. And I'm your Keyforge friend, joined this week by one of my earliest Keyforge friends, Mr. Zach Armstrong. What's going on, buddy? Hey, happy to be here. Keyforge friendly, like always. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We are continuing our run of having the Call of Discovery Moonlight on this uh, beautiful Help from Future Self series that we've been uh, doing over the past, uh, I guess it's a month and a half now because of our, our new new segment. Yeah. So... We are going to be continuing on with the revisiting the Bouncing Death Quark episodes and seeing how they still land and how we feel about those concepts now that it's five sets deep. And this week we are visiting episode 10, which is single turn card evaluations. And my initial thought, Zach, is that the name of the episode and what the episode went on, it was, um, it was an interesting journey. <laughs> yes, I think I think if they had uh, maybe just stewed on the title a little bit more, they might have um, they might have decided to call it something else other than single turn card evaluation. I see how they got there, but I think yeah. they actually touched on larger strategic topics than just you know one card on one turn, which was kind of a core of what they were talking about. But it really got so much bigger than that. Agreed. Agreed. What was your your initial, I guess, feeling after hearing the episode? After hearing the episode, my initial feeling was that this is one of their... I, I think they touched on more evergreen concepts than they usually did, which I know is their whole goal. And a lot of their stuff's quite solid, um, you know, quite solid. This one, I think was so general yet still helpful ways to strategically think about Keyforge and the way the game is set up that I thought it was quite helpful. And then my second thought after that was, I wish they had done a deep dive on the ideas of hierarchy of play value, right? They talked about the um, different factors that make a, uh, you know, a given course of action valuable or not valuable relative to others. And I wanted more than 20 minutes of that. <laughs> yeah, and, and also, you mean, because there's the episode, obviously, where they introduce the concept, but you wanted like a, a general, deeper dive on those concepts themselves. Yeah, those concepts themselves, and then how to how to evaluate them. Maybe uh, going through examples with you know the sets that are coming out, um, just uh, kind of showing the the boots on the ground version of oh, okay, like in a real game of KeyForge, uh, you know, okay, let's say AOA is out right now. Let's look at a situation you might find yourself in in AOA and analyze gotcha. you know analyze some some things there as well as yeah diving into the their hierarchy of play value. Um, a little bit more. Yeah, like a, an episode for each hierarchy, essentially. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah I, I'm I'm pretty much on the, the same page. The, the one thing that I, I really enjoyed was when they started off the episode saying there's three things that they, they basically think about every turn. Mm-hmm. So on yeah. a single turn, the thing you're valuing is one is key creation. Can you create a key? or get yourself in a position to be in check to create a key this turn or stop an opponent. Mm-hmm. And then how much raw ember can you create in a given turn between your three houses? 
And then how much can you increase your delta? And I feel like the term delta was very prevalent in this episode and the main theme of kind of any decision being made for the most part. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, As a reminder, although if you're listening this far into help from future self these days, I'm sure you know what Delta is, but that's the difference in potential Amber game between you and your opponent. Um, Most, uh, when they reference it casually um, in regards to battle lines, they're often talking about uh, the difference between creatures of like your, your most populous house on, on the battle line. So say if I had three Brabnar creatures and you had five Sanctum creatures, that would be a delta of two. But if I have four Brabnar creatures and you have two creatures each of each two of your houses, it's still a delta of two, but in my favor. Um, yeah. Uh, of course, including anything you might they might have in their hand that might that might generate amber as well. Yeah, it's, a, it's potential amber, essentially, or expected amber mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. One thing... Yeah, one one thing that I I really appreciated was um, they talk about the board infrastructure a lot, particularly Kodamron. Like very much is a student of you need to build a board infrastructure and what that Mm -hmm. looks like in terms of giving up the early game in some instances in order to allow you to start putting that into place. And I found that quite interesting because I feel like going back on this it's something that is is really been mentioned quite a bit in the importance of it and I feel that I don't think about it as a player enough before this like now I felt like I'm quite dialed into the concept mm-hmm. but before I felt like I was really slacking on making sure that's a thing that I'm considering and I don't yeah. know if you felt the same way yeah, I think uh, so. Uh, <laughs> I feel similarly in that it kind of points out uh, a flaw in that um, I will sometimes do that too much. That being like uh, play things to set up my board and then uh, like just and then make sure you're using them. Um, you know, if they're, if it's still going to get the value you expected it to get when you set it up, because sometimes you, you know, you play down a few creatures and a few artifacts and your opponent changes the situation and all of a sudden, well, uh, maybe I'll be playing from hand this turn instead. But yeah, the importance of getting that value out of, out of the board you've set up, um, I think is real important, especially when maybe you're doing that and you're not cycling your hand as much. So you're going a little bit slower, but I know the, uh, the, the, the state, the board state that reminds me of, or a, a situation I find myself in often, is when you're in one of those games where your opponent is on top of kind of your amber, con- on top of amber control and creature control kind of all at once. So like you play stuff to set up, to try to set up, and you don't have any burst plays, and you play stuff to the board to try to set up, and then they just blow up half the creatures, two-thirds of the creatures you just played, and they kind of set you back to square one or square two. Uh, every time, um, mm-hmm. so that, that's what that reminded me of. Uh, and that, yeah, I try to do that sometimes, but sometimes I just have a bad game, and um, <laughs> they keep blowing everybody up. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, there's there's the thought of uh, sometimes you you start playing things out of hand and and to cycle, but if what you're playing are infrastructure cards, there there comes a point where you can, you can't keep doing that. And I think that's sometimes forgotten is sometimes you have to once the infrastructure is there for any house that 
can make a significant return on that infrastructure investment, you need to be utilizing it and maybe not cycling because uh, cycling is such a a common, I guess, beginner's thing too. If you're not sure what to do, just cycle cards. Yeah, and and that really kind of got hit home with me over these episodes. For sure. And I think it was great that they talked about these in spots number two and three under key creation and denial, even though they they, they pointed out the nuance that um, honestly affected Delta might be in spot number two above Android, Amber generation, maybe up to like half the time, depending on the game state. Um, mm-hmm. And Code Dameron said the phrase that I thought was a great way to just like simplify it, to put it in your head during a game, Amber for today versus cars for tomorrow. Yes. Right. Yes. Are you playing for Amber for today, or you're playing for cards for tomorrow? Yeah that that is uh, that is really very true. Uh, one thing he also said was that uh, decks are best that get Ember out of creatures and build infrastructure. <laughs> yeah. And I found that so interesting because of the fact this came during Coda. That's right. Yeah. When, a little bit prophetic, most, I'd say. Yeah. When most people in Coda were really and the mind state it's how much ember can i generate just from playing cards mm-hmm. i feel like that was the the rule that most people followed during that time yeah for sure for sure um yeah i think reaping with creatures there is that inherent value that of course with the big caveat if you're able to use your creatures and if you're calling the house of creatures that are already on the board you know they're getting you amber they don't have amber printed on them but they're going to stick there and they're going to keep getting you amber it's much slower sure than a, a pip on a card or a treasure map or something like that but they are more consistent if you can if you can use them and i think codameron was recognizing that value um at a time when it wasn't um you know, it wasn't like the days of uh, Worlds Clydeborg, especially Mass Mutation, where you really see, at least in the kind of higher end Archon Solo stuff, you see a lot of uh, a lot of big boards, and you have to pack the board wipes to deal with them. Yeah, no, this is uh, very true. Very true. Something else he said. Uh, it was very humble and very witty, which I was. I just I giggled. Uh, I giggled like Drazcore does. He said, uh, he said, my favorite way to get Amber is reaping with creatures on the board. And then he said, some people and decks disagree with that. <laughs> Which I thought he was really funny he, that he said some decks disagree with that and that he was very aware there's plenty of rush decks out there, you know, especially in the Coda days that, de- that totally. did not care for creatures on the board. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, one, one thing that I think is interesting that since this has come out and what exists is the combo factor that exists is so much greater Mm. and the combos won't always exist in terms of a card coming out of your hand the combo can exist on the board and i mean they they obviously talk about the john smith and the 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 bolter or the mega mouse sorry Uh, the mega Mega mouse in mars really being like the forerunners to what we ended up seeing come around in star alliance later on and I just found that very interesting that they chose those cards. Like in so many episodes, they're talking about John Smith and Megamouth because of the inherent value it gives you to utilize so many things and get so much ember off of two creatures, essentially, and the way yeah. it can daisy chain down. And we've really seen that get much greater and more complex even as we've come into Dark Tidings. 
That's right, because it's it's creature value, right? John yes. Smith, Mega Mouth. It's using additional creatures, uh, breaking the rule of Active House. It's readying a creature to repeatedly use it when usually you just get one use. Mm-hmm. So it's um, the more value you can get out of your creatures because uh, an action card is one and done. You know, uh, an uh, artifact is going to just probably sit there, then they all do all sorts of things. But a creature can get you its effects, its fight or its reap effects or its its reap effects or its static effects, especially over and over again. So I think they, yeah, were, they were smart how, to recognize the value in those. Mm-hmm. And depending on how, I guess, strong that effect is, it's you're, you're inclined to call the house over and over again until it's dealt with to a point where it's uh, the returns are diminished, so to speak. Yeah, it really puts you on. Now, they didn't use the language of beat down versus control like I referenced um, the old Magic the Gathering article an mm-hmm. episode or two ago. Uh, but they were really talking about that idea. Like if you have that board and you can be the beat down, like you should, you should go for it. But if you spend too much time setting up just to try to play control when you should have been being the beat down, i.e. gaining amber, reaping, you know, getting getting to check each turn, you know, you might you might end up behind the eight ball and and your opponent gets across the finish line before you do yep it's very very true very true indeed so another thing that i want to talk about from this episode was the concept they had of decisions based on whether or not your opponent is going to use the card like what Mm, house mm -hmm. are they going to choose next and weighing that as how much of a threat is that card across from you because i thought that was quite an interesting concept yes yes it's the to use their you know mega mouth example um mega mouth is in a vacuum a good card but if they're playing it you know turn one and they don't have any non-mars creatures out what's their one even if they use mega mouth their next turn they're not going to be in all likelihood they're not going to be uh, getting you know the full effective value out of Mega Mouth. So choosing when to actually, uh, when is it most efficient for you based on, you know, your removal options to go after that Mega Mouth? Because sometimes you have something real easy we're going to play anyways where you can just blow Mega Mouth up no matter what. But if that's really going to cost you something, you start to have to guess when they get value out of it and try to sneak in your removal before that. Mm-hmm. Or in the sense of, I don't have removal right now. Right. I only have a creature. <laughs> is it worth trading at this point? Or are they unlikely right. to use it anyways? Like, what's the value in me maybe trading or putting my creature uh, with only one point of damage remaining before it is also destroyed? Yeah. There's all these factors that I think are quite interesting that I think sometimes cards can, especially now with the, the way the game has progressed, there's a lot more sort of i guess we'll call them we'll call them witches because that's a term everyone understands that exists within the game that you're you need to kill the witch but sometimes the thought of killing the witch is not the right thought but it has this almost celebrity status that when you see it it causes something in your mind to freak out and be like oh i need to deal with this when maybe the likelihood of them going into that house again to utilize said witch is not the next turn and therefore, you spent a whole turn dealing with it when they had no intention. It's like the there's sometimes I know I'm sure you have decks like this where you intentionally will put down a card because you know oh, yeah. it's going to draw attention away 
from what you're actually planning on doing just because of the the celebrity and notoriety that that card has. Oh, for sure. I think a car that I do that, I've done that often with, and I also have to do some critical thinking myself when I see it across from me is which of the eye. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes I play which of the eye I draw up and there is absolutely nothing degenerate for me to, you know, play, reap with which of the eye, return a card from discard pile to hand and then play again. Like I just don't have anything dangerous. Um, so sometimes you'll play which of the eye and somebody will just spend an entire turn getting rid of it. And you're like, well, that was actually a really effective play for me, but not because that card comboed off. It's because my opponent just wasted a whole turn, not wasted, but killed the whole turn to get rid of it, but I wasn't going to get any value. So I, I, it's really a little microcosm to how good of a player my opponent may or may not be, at least in that moment when I play which of the eye whether or not I have strong stuff to follow it up with. And they go, okay, how much of your Untamed have I seen? What's in your deck? What's your board state like? How much can you take advantage of that? And then once I decide how much I think you can take advantage of that, which of the eye, then I'll decide how much effort I put into trying to remove it. I agree. Yeah, that's that yeah. would have been my example as well. I feel like which of the which of the eye is the quintessential mm-hmm. sort of. Is it really going to be dangerous? But there is so many things that uh, can be done, and I think that also brings me to the point of uh, this whole idea of decisions based on you know whether or not your opponent is going to use the card or call that house. And I think as players looking at your opponent's discard needs to be done more frequently and often sure. when making decisions For sure. the the easiest thing you can do to give yourself kind of a insight into what has happened and also what could be as a result of what has happened in terms of house calling it etc and even potential uh, dangerous things that exist i agree i think if you are wanting to play uh because you enjoy it this way if you're wanting to play more seriously and to kind of keep track of all those sorts of things i need i think you need to be asking for that discard um asking for that discard on a you know not every turn but like on a pretty regular basis and a hundred percent you need to be asking to see the discard uh when you notice it's getting pretty full and they might flip soon because as soon as they flip and and they shuffle into a new deck you you don't get to go back and ask to look at their discard that information's now gone Mm -hmm. very true yeah Something else that came about, which was just, I've never thought about it this way, and it was more, it's not the whole episode, but just a a tidbit that existed within it that is never, on my part, considered, I don't know about, I'm not going to speak for you, Zach, here, but when they were talking about how Doc Bookton has a reap effect of drawing a card, Mm. and how essentially you're only drawing a third of a card, right? because there's potentially two houses you could draw that you cannot use this term making it useless and therefore potentially doing nothing because if you're drawing it into your hand and it's not above six that means you're not drawing anyways or you would have drawn it anyway so it really is a wash at the end of the day and i never really thought about drawing cards in that way yeah um i think that's a great thing to keep in mind right i was playing a i was playing a game uh just last night actually got some irl play which was lovely and i had a francis the economist with a a draw pip and i remember think i remember playing it i didn't get to play with any special situation and then i just drew into you know a card i would have drawn up at the end of turn that was out of house and it was just a little moment where i meant uh yep that's uh that's what happens when you get to draw only one card you just 
you're seeing your end of turn card like about 20 seconds earlier and that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's something to keep in mind when you're when you're thinking, "Oh, well this gives me the chance to cycle and draw cards." It's like it only becomes relevant if a you can play the card you draw or b it's uh I think they they hold more like logos I think really holds tr- like strong when they're a main house and you're going to be calling them over and over again and you're not really cycling that much and then you're getting the draw because then you're getting a bigger hand which means yes when yes. you come around to those other houses you're going to be doing the most that's right i have an old deck with uh three um doc booked in with reap draw card and then i think two or three library of babel and it's not a good deck but it taught me that if i could main house logos and just doing draw one with all of those cards it set me up for a huge turns later now mm. of course the the thing i will say with you know draw one card effects like those cards we just mentioned um in that vacuum of will i get it in the active house or not right you've got probably a one in three chance maybe less than one in three chance just depending on what's in your deck and the fact that um if you're in logos you know doc bookton is a logos card so that's you've got 11 left in the rest of your deck um in theory but um you also have to think uh, your deck might have other things to do with that out of house card, right? You might have, uh, you might have a phase shift. You mm-hmm. might have a lab work to to archive things or a sloppy lab work, and so you're going to want that that uh, extra target. So really, the the question isn't like, oh, how good is this? It's do I have a better option than reaping yeah. and drawing one with Doc Bookton, right? It's like, is there something better to do? It's like, well, no, there's not something better to do because I think that's where. That's where, even though it's kind of funny to say, oh, do I have anything better to do? No, I really think that's the tacti- tactical question that helps you sequence as efficiently as possible once you've decided on your game plan uh, for for a turn. You know, And also, it also brings back the idea of not only looking at your opponent's discard, but looking at your own discard to have yes. knowledge of what has happened and understanding the, the more odds of you pulling any given house. Yeah. It, uh, in some decks where I have a lot of recursion, I picked up an evil twin deck from uh, Joel Kerr. Shout out to Vault Warrior and his whole thing there. Uh, I picked up a deck from him recently that has a lot of recursion with Evil Twin, Witch of the Dawn. And when I play that in uh, in real life, um, you've, some people you see this in other card games. I actually do my discard pile kind of like a kind of like a spread out pile where I can just see the tops of each card so I can keep track of exactly how many I've spent of each house and kind of what's in my mm-hmm. discard pile because that's basically you know a second hand uh, right it's basically a second hand at that deck especially with forgive or forget and, and stuff like that so yeah I think looking back at your own discard pile um, is is great just to jog your memory and to count mm-hmm. totally uh, another thing I, I kind of like about the, well, I guess I won't say I like the the thing that can be taken into consideration <laughs> is where that draw effect, even though you know you may not be playing the card, is mm-hmm. if you kind of know where, that you're on the end of your logos train, like you you know next turn you're you're most likely going to be calling another house, yeah. is by drawing into your card, it's going to let you see what other houses coming up maybe in spades, or if you know you need to have an answer, and is that you know you have that information sooner so that you you kind of know what you want to do to a degree sooner because i i'm very much from the school of when i play irl i'm a big proprietor of draw like your hand down and don't look at it 
during your opponent's turn oh, because there's, yes. sure. there's there's no need to spend that energy, um, especially with the way my brain works, is thinking of ways to do things as you're watching yeah. your opponent play when meanwhile at the end of the turn they finish with a board wipe, which took all those theoretical yep. ideas you were trying to yep. put together just rendered moot by the end of it. Yeah, yeah, I I do that a lot too. Um, uh, I probably do it about half the time in casual games, and if I'm playing anything serious, I, I play that way most of the time. Where at the end of my turn, I put my hand face down, and I just deal out the cards up to six, and I announce how many I'm going up to. You know, mm-hmm. and if I have chains, I include that, and then I just keep it all face down. Um, the first place I heard of that in Keyforge was when Yeti. Yeti Games, who ran several vault tours, they were, did it brilliantly. I really hope they they get to do it again. Uh, that's how they asked people, especially at the tables with judges at them. That's how they asked people to uh, to draw Best their practice. cards, so that if there was yeah. yeah, so that if there was an issue, they hadn't seen the cards yet. And and you're right. I think it has a great side effect of letting you focus on letting you focus on. Uh, what's on going on on your opponent's side of the board. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you don't miss anything because you're truly paying attention to what's happening. And yeah, that's where, that's where I heard it was at the Vegas vault tour when mm-hmm. Duncan mm-hmm. said, listen, if you make a mistake, there's no harm, no foul because there's no information has been revealed. You just put it back on top if you accidentally overdrew. So yeah, it's uh, it's really great in that regard without a doubt. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Do you have anything else from the episode you'd like to bring up, Zach, or shall we move on to our segment, our reoccurring segment? Uh, let's, uh, yeah, let's do it. Let's move on to our reoccurring segment. And what is that segment, Zach? That segment is when is this card good? Where instead of picking a card to give it some sort of numerical value rating, which can be handy, uh, we pick a card and we ask, when is it good? The answer might be a whole lot. Very often, the answer might be, you know, pretty much never. Uh, but Keyforge is such a game of it depends and if thens that uh, I think it's just such a great way to to approach a card to really see all its ins and outs. And what totally. what card what card are we asking that question of today, Mister Blake? Zach, you suggested we visit Bad Penny, the original Penny. <laughs> yes, yes, the original. Bad Penny. Some people would say she lives up to the name. So that's why we're talking about her today. Is she bad? Is she just Penny? Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> well, so right off the top, I would say that Bad Penny is only truly bad when she can't be used as fodder in some capacity. Yes. Because that seems to be where you're going to get the greatest effect of abusing that destroyed ability to your advantage. Yes. So yeah. I, I basically went over to Archon Arcana to just basically find out what sets did Bad Penny uh, show up in. And it was called the Archons, Age of Ascension and Worlds Collide. So I just highlighted all those so then I could see all the cards and look for ways that you could have some fun with uh, with Bad Penny. And, and at the end of it, my, my analysis ended up coming down to the core fact that Bad Penny is a combo card. Yes. That's what you want. Uh, that you want to do combos. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
That was my, that was my, uh, that was my, uh, summary, a hundred, a hundred percent, like on her own, there's, there's rarely a situation where just like a fight or reap with a bad penny at the risk of your opponent, sending her back to your hand and not, and you not wanting to call shadows. Um, there's not a lot of places she's great, but once you start, once she becomes fuel for some other cards, she can, uh, she can really help out. She can Mm -hmm. really help out. And then the the second point where I think Bad Penny is actually good is when you're going to be calling Shadows over and over again. So that would mean that Shadows is your main house. Because by by that effect, if it's being returned to your hand constantly when you start your next turn and you're planning on calling Shadows again, you don't really care that it's in your hand because it's not really contributing to you drawing less cards in the end because you can put it down or discard it on that next turn and you can kind of use the law of diminishing returns to decide when bad penny belongs in the discard rather than the board mm-hmm. yeah for sure for sure um uh, a related uh, a related situation for bad penny is that i've used her for is being the punching bag for damage that's uh, going to hit you, your creatures, whether it's symmetrical or an effect where you only, your opponent doesn't have creatures in play. Um, for instance, uh, a example I came across when I was playing um, in a, a sealed a sealed worlds collide uh, triad for a prime. This guy opened a double ragwarg deck and had a ton of shadows creatures and ragwarg is uh when a creature reaps if it is the first time this turn a creature has reaped uh you know it deals it it takes two damage and he had two ragwargs and what he would do is he got them out and then he played this big shadows board and he would just reap with bad penny first so that he didn't actually have to lose a creature um and anytime one of my creatures reaped, I'd have to you know I'd have to pick the first one to reap, and it would take it would take four damage. Um, mm. And there's other things like um, the uh, the artifact that um, oh no, I don't think they were that artifact was in. I'm thinking of the artifact that uh, deals three damage to all flank creatures, but I don't believe no, that was in the was, set. Was Spike Trap was part of Spike it. Trap? Yes. Okay. Spike Trap was in Worlds Clyde. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it's it it allows to be a buffer for mm-hmm. you in that regard, and so you don't have to worry about it going away. You get to uh, just put it back in your hand. That card's also in shadows, and you are off to the races in that regard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's obviously um, a whole list of of cards that create those combos that deal one damage, etc. That really highlight the way you can abuse bad penny and also generate ember and in mm-hmm. extreme ways if we're going to be honest oh yeah there's everything from like the the basics right like um seeker needle uh or relentless whispers all the way to the more kind of um hilarious stuff that really has just i think existed mostly in in people's heads like uh if you have an auto cannon and a hunting witch um, mm-hmm. that's just a free <laughs> six amber once you hit the rule of six with bad penny, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. That one is, uh, I have actually never heard of that one, but I, I'm really enjoying that one. Um, the seeker needle one for sure. And then obviously Mac, the knife is another one that works really well because you're, uh, yes, 
you're getting the same effect with a creature. And so between Seeker Needle and that and a Reap, that's three three Ember every turn. Um, if you're putting Bad Penny out, it's not being taken care of. It's it's. I think Bad Penny is the most interesting when you have something that's uh, on the board, like Seeker Needle. And that they have to recognize that if they're not taking care of Bad Penny, it's essentially you're getting a minimum of two Ember every turn because you get to Reap, then you Seeker Needle, mm-hmm. then you play it again, and you, you can keep going. And it can get even crazier in Worlds Collide when you add the Vindas, just both of those. I think both their, eff- their effects are equally powerful just in different ways and you can use them both on a bad penny to just keep going and and really hurting your opponent yeah i will i will say now this is not mathematical analysis on the vendas but i have opened so many multiple bad penny multiple vinda decks and i've maybe had one game where i actually got to use like multiple vendas on you know bad penny for like more than like just a turn or two like (laughs) something always interrupts it there's always like a better play or or something else like i really you you can tell because of like the flavor text like it was intended for bad penny to show up with the vendas sometimes and for that to be a combo but man i have i have never i have never pulled that off with regularity i don't know if that's just my own my own uh misfortune (laughs) or if it just really doesn't work that way for people but man yeah and i mean it's meant they're meant to go together because like you said the the flavor text is my sister and i have a job job lined up you and penny like that's literally what the card text (laughs) so yes it's pretty funny um some other great cards i'm sure you have a list as well zach i went for shadows only so if you got some that are outside of shadows um Mm. you can chime in uh after this but the they're just basically ways that you get to use destroyed effects that have a condition that involve you getting rid of your own creature without having to maybe get rid of something that you more would like to exist so obviously life for a life pawn sacrifice Mm -hmm. are big ones for sure and then lastly uh one that's that's really nice is one last job because it will get rid of the bad penny so it's a nice finishing move to get rid of penny if you're especially near the end of calling maybe shadows over and over uh, if it's back in your hand and you draw into your one last job it guarantees you you have a card that can get used uh, within that steel effect and purging which is it kind of nice it's especially because one last job is such a great support and like honestly bad penny you don't really want in a support house because it's it's going to potentially stay in your hand and you're going to have to make that decision to put it in the discard at some point yeah yeah for sure um i yeah and that's the other thing is i don't have uh i never just thinking about it never saw a whole lot of combinations with bad penny combos with bad penny outside of yeah house shadows i'm even just scrolling right now but but really it's mostly in house shadows because there's always that risk that now maybe i'm more afraid of this than like it's it maybe it's not as bad as i think but i've always got that voice in the back of my head that's like well if you keep penny out and they kill penny and it goes back to your hand uh you've got that chain until like until yeah. you're playing until you're playing shadows next which um you know could i think could be bad if that you know if penny's going to stay there for for a while um totally. depends on how much effort they're putting into penny too but yeah 
Yeah, I'm I'm just terrified to keep Penny on the board if I'm not comboing with her. <laughs> yeah, and the more you've gone through your Shadows house, the less likely you're going to call Shadows and the more of a chain that will really feel like as the game progresses. So it it is something that you you sometimes have to just cut cut your losses and just be like, "You know what? I'm getting rid of it now. I I have combos for this, but I can't just hold on to this waiting for those to come at this point." Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so I guess that that's going to sum up Bad Penny. So I guess at the end of the day, Bad Penny isn't great, but there are situations <laughs> that can occur in the game where you can actually have some really silly things that will combo off nicely. And because Bad Penny, I think, is regarded universally in most cases as something that you're going to draw and get rid of, you're going to probably catch most people off guard with those combos like they're not gonna overtly see them coming per se because you're not looking for bad penny combos in a deck when you're going through an archon list at least i personally don't i know about you zach sure and uh short answer is yes but the often it's those people will wait to play those combos from hand. Now, they're probably not holding the bad penny, but if they know they've got, you know, life for a life or sacrificial, um, uh, you know, sacrifice a creature, deal six damage to an enemy creature, um, they are probably holding bad penny if they know they need to fire that off to, you know, to do that from hand just because it's uh, it can slow you down if you actually destroy bad penny or you do destroy bad penny on their turn and it goes back to hand. So... Uh, yeah, I'm usually not too worried about Bad Penny, but looking for that fuel, what can Bad Penny fuel, um, is is something to be aware of. Uh, although, as Arcana Arcana notes, really one of the only ways to get around the destroyed effect with all the different purge cards in the game is something like Oubliette or, or Cyberclone. Uh, quite a number of other effects, Bad Penny ends up going back to the hand before she can... Be purged, so she's uh, she's tough to get rid of. She uh, she yeah, keeps showing up. She keeps showing up. Can be a destroyed then then purged effect. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So uh, she is iconic, even if she is not good in most of the decks. Um, but I for sure, you can get your opponent rolling rolling their eyes when uh, you're going off on a bad penny combo, whatever that is, because <laughs> there's plenty yeah, of it's, them. It's very true. Bad Penny is one of the original iconic cards. There's without a doubt that is true. And I'm I'm glad you suggested it because it made me look into some things that are quite interesting. And now I almost want to see if I can be abusive with uh, some fun Bad Penny combos because I'm, I'm into the combo plays these days. <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. So, of course, we cannot end an episode without our titular segment. We call this one... Help from future self. Zach, I understand you have one for us this episode because of your recent IRL excursion. Yes, uh, I was visiting Chicago. Uh, By the time this releases, I'll be safely back at home. Uh, But I was uh, in Chicago recently and last night got to play uh, a few IRL games with my friend Kyle, who used to be from uh, the Southeast United States, uh, like I am now he's, uh, more up here. And the, something we did that was a lot of fun was both of us, uh, just had brought, uh, a few pairs of sealed decks and I brought worlds collide. He had dark tidings and some other things. And I said, you know, let's do a deck swap where 
you know, whatever decks we open for sealed, like I'm giving you my one of my worlds collide, you're giving me one of your dark tidings, like we're just going to keep those decks because that'll make it fun, that'll make it special. Um, and uh, it did, it was a lot of fun. And I actually opened my first uh, evil twin deck. Now, I've purchased one on the secondary market before, but this is the first evil twin that I have actually opened myself. Uh, and I did it in a deck swap with a friend. And uh, the deck, the deck is decent, but now the deck is going to be awfully special to me because, you know, I was visiting visiting a friend and uh, basically got it got it from him in a sealed match. So that was just one of those one of those uniquely KeyForge experiences with a KeyForge friend that uh, I just found very valuable. So I encourage you I encourage you if you're meeting up your KeyForge friends, either the ones you see all the time or the ones you see a little more rarely, to do a deck swap and uh, see what you get. It'll make it more meaningful. Whatever it is. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that that's one of the great benefits that Keyforge provides is a deck because it cannot be changed in any form. You can have a story or a significance attached to it, and that will not change over time yeah. unless you get rid of it. Exactly. exactly. And I, I really appreciate that about the game. It's also like if it's someone's birthday, getting them a single deck is almost more meaningful because of the <laughs> fact that it will only be yep. that one associated with this birthday, et cetera. I have a deck like that yeah. that I hold very dearly as a result of that. Yes, I uh, a friend was sending me a gift, and uh, they happened to be at the physically at the one dollar KeyForge sale at the Asmodee warehouse. And this friend asked me, Zach, do you need some more Worlds Collide decks? And I said, Well. My first answer is no, I don't need more decks. But my second answer is that the few times you have sent me decks, friend, they've been special. So I will happily take a few decks if they're from you because that's going to be special. Yeah, totally. Amazing. And that's going to do it for this episode. And uh, we'll be back at you in a fortnight. And uh, until then, you can get at us on social media, etc. We will definitely, for the next which card, when is this card good, we will take a poll from our listeners in the Help From Future Self podcast channel. So be sure to submit your choices of a card you wish to be evaluated. And if you wish to talk to Zach about anything that was on this episode or our past few episodes, uh, where can they reach you, Zach? Uh, they can reach me on Twitter. I'm Zach underscore Legweek uh, on Twitter. Pretty active on there. So please chat me up, uh, shoot me a DM, whatever you'd like to do. Uh, and bringing up the the Help from Future Self Discord, a shout out to uh, Proofpad. He is the one who uh, first brought up uh, Bad Penny. Uh, and when we, we picked it up and said, yeah, we're going to run with that one. Yes, but the next one will be a poll. So we'll do sort of Excellent. probably a, a thumbs up on two cards and whichever cards get the more thumbs up of some variety, we will go with that one. And if you wish to reach out to me and to talk to me about anything Keyforge related, you can find me on Discord is now my main form of communication. And it's uh, Boulevard Blake number sign 3840. That's BLVD Blake number sign 3840. So uh, get at me there. I'm just in the midst of settling after a move. So I'm hoping to be creating some YouTube content in the next week or two. But until then, folks, stay forging.